In the 80s and 90s, tobacco companies, they had been under heavy scrutiny. There were not only some pretty strong links and indications that smoking cigarettes led to lung cancer, but there was an ever-increasing realization among the public that cigarettes were also highly addictive. Many health experts and associations at the time from around the world had come to a general consensus that cigarettes are dangerous and addictive. The Surgeon General in 1988 even put out an article talking about the addictive nature of cigarettes, even connecting it to heroin. And in 1994, Congressman Chairman Henry Waxman held a series of hearings with seven of the biggest tobacco companies in America at the time. And so seven presidents and CEOs for the largest tobacco companies came before the Congress and took an oath that they would tell the truth. And at one point during the hearing, Congressman Ron Wyden asked all of them whether or not they think tobacco is addictive. He said, let me ask you first, and, I, and I'd like to just go down the row, whether each of you believe that nicotine is not addictive. And then he proceeded to look at each of these seven men and ask the question, do you believe nicotine is not addictive? And despite the overwhelming amount of evidence and studies about nicotine's addiction, despite the consensus among med the medical community, Every one of these men responded, I believe that nicotine is not addictive. And James Johnston, chairman and CEO of a major tobacco company, even went so far to say very confidently, Mr. Congressman, cigarettes or nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definition of addiction. Now let me ask, why do you think that they would reject the claims that this dangerous substance is addictive when all of the evidence says otherwise? It's because of a sinful motivation, greed. Their love and hunger for money led them to dismiss the truth about nicotine, even though it put millions of people in danger. And sadly, what's real sad is I think that many of them were so blinded by the deceitfulness of sin that they actually probably believed what they were saying. So far in Acts, we've seen that the apostles waited in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, they do receive the Holy Spirit. And immediately after that, they go out and this simple fisherman named Peter, he goes and he boldly proclaims Jesus Christ to several thousand Jews and proselytes. 
And 3,000 of them came to the Lord that day. And we also saw after that, if you remember, that 3,000 new believers, we saw how they acted like a family. They met together regularly. They broke bread together. They shared their possessions. They worshiped Jesus together. And the last time we were in Acts, a couple weeks ago, we saw that they healed a lame beggar standing in front of what was called the beautiful gate inside the temple. And because of this miraculous healing, thousands of people inside the temple began to gather around Peter and John and the lamed, lame beggar who is now healed. And Peter uses this opportunity, uses his audience to talk once again about Jesus. Now we're coming to our text, which is after Peter has been preaching to the, the people in the temple who have gathered around them. And we see now that some new characters come onto the scene. Let's look at verses one and two. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So while Peter and John are speaking, all of a sudden, three groups of people come out. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Well, who were these people? The priests were the Jewish people from the tribe of Levi, and they performed religious duties inside the temple, and they also did uh, sacrifices and, and offered uh, religious services on behalf of the people uh, working in the temple. Within the temple, there were also what were called temple police. These were sort of like the security guards or the police force for the temple. They maintained the peace inside the temple. And the captain of the temple police was the commander and leader of the temple police. But it also says that along with the priests and the captain of the temple came the Sadducees. Who were they? Well, the Sadducees were a group of Jewish aristocrats and they came into power and they sort of got their authority during the time of Hellenization when, when um, Alexander the Great conquers the world and, and the Romans after that. Uh, the Sadducees came into their authority during that time. They were friendly with the Roman governors and the Romans would allow the Sadducees to govern the Jewish people under Roman authority. They had great power and authority, and the Sadducees loved it. Now the text says that they were all greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. So why is that? I think there's a few reasons. I'll, I'll point out two. They were first annoyed because Peter and John are preaching inside the temple when that was a responsibility of the priests. They had only 
approved of what the priests would be teaching, Peter and John didn't have that authority in their eyes. Secondly, they were annoyed because they were teaching about the resurrection. And the Sadducees didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. And here's what these three did to them. The priest, the, cap, the, the, temple, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees did to them. Look at verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they arrest Peter and John and even the healed man, and they put them in custody until the next day. The text says that it was already evening, so it was probably too late in the day to, to have a hearing or a council, so they put them away for the night uh, to call them out the next day. And what we need to see here, and a point we can take away here, is that Peter and John are suffering for the proclamation of the gospel. But look at what also happened. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So if you remember on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people. And we see a a narrative clue from Acts 2 to, to where we're at now, that people were continuing to be added that day, and God kept increasing the number uh, that day. Uh, But we can say probably maybe well over a thousand Jews uh, had come to believe in Jesus, making the number about 5,000 Jewish Christians in all. So altogether, what we've seen in verses 1 to 4 is suffering for the proclamation of the gospel, but at the same time, others come to believe. Now listen to what happens the next day, beginning in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who who are of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So let's all take a step back. And let's imagine this scene for a second. When the Jewish people would hold these councils, the leaders, they would sit in judgment on the people and they would sit in these semicircles. So like a semicircle, several semicircles in a row, and the people being judged or, or the hearing, they would stand sort of in the middle with all these people in front of them. Now, imagine if you can, some sort of scenario today where maybe a a lay Christian has to stand in before a group of maybe like a hundred biblical scholars and defend his biblical beliefs. How intimidating would that be for that person? That's kind of a similar situation. Peter and John are standing in front of a bunch of powerful, educated men. And those men, some of them, are of the high priestly family. Annas, he was the former high priest. He wasn't 
actually the high priest. Uh, I heard one person point out that he still sort of gets this title. It's sort of like the way that we still call former presidents President Obama or President Bush. Uh, the, the true high priest, the reigning high priest, is Caiaphas. And it also says that John and Alexander were with them. And I'm going to be honest, we really don't know anything about John and Alexander. Uh, we just, we don't know who they are. If you guys can remember back to the Gospels, that just a couple of months ago, Annas and Caiaphas held a trial against Jesus, and they actively condemned and rebuked Jesus at a trial, at a mock trial. And so now, they have participated in killing this Jesus that they hated, Annas and Caiaphas, and after condemning him and even mocking him until he died, they now find two of his followers in the temple still preaching about this Jesus that they thought they got rid of. This doesn't look good for Peter and John. And so they ask Peter and John the question, by what power or by what name did you do this? In Deuteronomy 13, Moses warned Israel about listening to people who would lead them astray to other gods, to watch out for it. By asking the question, by what power or by what name did you do this, what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to trap Peter and John into saying something that they can twist into whatever they want to, into violating Moses' command in Deuteronomy 13. And Peter boldly responds, starting in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. What a statement. He answers their question, the main point, that it was by Jesus' name that he healed the man. But he also adds the apposition, whom you crucified. Now, if you're standing in front of these religious leaders, and you might even have the possibility of the threat of death coming to you, you have to realize that this doesn't help their case. So let's notice for a second the boldness, the bravery to stand up for the truth 
They understood that standing up for Jesus was more important than potential consequences. And he tells them, yeah, Jesus was unexpected. He quotes Psalm 18, who uh, Mark read earlier. And um, he says that the stone that the builders rejected, he, that's who he was, but he has become the cornerstone. So in ancient Jewish buildings, they would look for these perfectly shaped rocks to, to build structures with, and the oddly shaped rocks they would cast aside. And so what Peter's saying is that Jesus wasn't what you were expecting at all. He was an odd-looking rock. He looked nothing like the Messiah that you expected. But he's actually the cornerstone, the foundational and most important rock in the entire building. And we can see that he's the foundational and most important rock, the cornerstone, the most important person in the universe by Peter's statement that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Notice the exclusivity exclusivity of Jesus. Salvation comes only by believing in him. Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except through him. There is no other way. And let me make it even more clear for you. Anything or any religion that points away from Jesus Christ is demonic. What we just saw was the bold proclamation of the gospel even in the midst of persecution. They are standing up for the truth even facing the threat of potential death. So we saw how they boldly responded to the religious leaders. How are the religious leaders going to respond? Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Now let's break this, this down a little bit and unpack it. Notice the evidences that the council saw that showed that their testimony was true. First, they noticed that Peter and John were uneducated men. They didn't go to rabbinical school. They hadn't been trained in theology. Yet they were speaking boldly about their beliefs and using great scripture to support it. The text says they also noticed that they had, he had been with Jesus. So in one sense, on one hand, they hadn't been to any official school, but on the other, they walked and talked with truth embodied. Reading books and studying, that's a great thing. I, I encourage it. 
But often, many of us can learn a great deal through experience. And these men learned a great deal by walking with Jesus. And the last evidence that they saw that the testimony was true was the healed man himself. So these uneducated men were speaking boldly and were eyewitnesses to the resurrection and had also just miraculously healed a man. How are the religious leaders going to respond? What are they going to say? Verse 14 says that they had nothing to say in opposition. Nothing. How is it possible that these simple fishermen were able to silence such religious elite? Ultimately, the answer is because it wasn't actually John and Peter. If we remember back up at verse 8, it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit rebuking them, teaching them, speaking through them. So the question becomes, what are the religious leaders going to do with what they've just heard? They have all the evidence in the world to believe. Are they going to submit to Jesus and the apostles' teaching? Or are they going to dig their heels in and harden their hearts? Let's look at verses 15 to 17. But when they had commanded them to leave the council... They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with this, these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Notice here, Notice here, look at this. They've witnessed an undeniable miracle. They even say at the end of verse 16, they cannot deny the miracle. They cannot deny what's happened. But yet, what was their decision anyway? It was to reject Jesus once again. Instead of coming to the logical conclusion that all these miracles, the resurrection, the healed man should lead them to accepting Jesus themselves and share Jesus with everyone, they say, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. Now, think about this. Why in the world would these religious leaders faced with this truth that has these great eternal consequences reject it? The simple answer? Power. The Sadducees and other religious leaders, Sanhedrin, they loved their religious, political, governing authority over the Jews. They liked their reputation. 
At one point in the Gospels, Jesus said about some of the religious leaders, they like to walk around in long robes, and they love greetings in the marketplaces. The chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They loved all the attention and respect that came with such a high, powerful office. And this movement about a crucified Messiah threatened that power. Because if Peter and John are right, if Jesus is truly the Lord of the world and they are his apostles, then these respected leaders would now have to submit not only to Jesus, but to these uneducated, simple apostles. As well as give up on the current religious Jewish system as it is. So just like the tobacco companies in 1994 denied the truth because of greed. These religious leaders denied the truth so that they could hold on to power. And they missed out on Jesus, the only one who could save them. And so they decide that they're going to warn Peter and John to not teach about Jesus anymore. That's what they've come together. How, in, how are John and Peter going to respond to that? Let's look at the last section of our text, verses 19 to 22. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had no further, when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they respond by saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you got to be the judge. In other words, you all are sitting here in front of us as our judges, so let me let you judge this. Is it better to obey you or God? The obvious answer is that they should obey God and preach the gospel. But verses 21 and 22 says that that's essentially the end of the conversation. They threaten them again, but then allow them to leave. And the only reason they did it was because the miracle was so great that it couldn't be denied. So once again, it comes back to power because even though the religious leaders would like to do more to John and Peter, and as we go on, we're going to see that they find some very interesting ways to torture the apostles. But they know that if they punish or kill John or Peter right now, the crowds will go after them and they'll lose their power anyway. The point of this passage is that because of their sinful lust for power, the religious leaders persecuted the apostles and rejected Jesus, and that the apostles, Peter and John, boldly proclaimed the truth in the face of persecution. 
So application point number one. We must boldly stand for the truth, even with the threat of persecution. I'll say that again. We must boldly stand for the truth, even with the threat of persecution. So even though John and Peter, they faced persecution, and even perhaps the threat of death, they still stood for the truth. They didn't care about the consequences. They knew that what ultimately mattered was obeying God. And many of us, we have the, the threat of persecution in many ways. A common fear in evangelism is that we're going to be rejected. On a public level, uh, many churches uh, might compromise, particularly with gender issues, truths of scripture to satisfy public secular opinion. And the rising tension between Christians and more of the liberal wing of secularism in the media, particularly on these issues of gender, continues to threaten to label Christians as bigots. And some will even go so far as to say that Christian intolerance and persecution of those that they don't tolerate in their words is on par with racism. Missionaries in many places are often threatened with persecution and death if they share the gospel. And I want to say that sometimes the consequences for being faithful may be very costly. But we have to remain faithful to Jesus. We have to boldly stand for him and his word. And for some of the reasons just mentioned a moment ago, we have to prepare ourselves that we may shortly end up being persecuted even greater in America for our faith. What we have in America with our Christian faith this is, this is not normal. This is not what normally should be happening. There are brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering for their faith, and, and we have it really easy here, and it may not last, and we have to be prepared for that. Application point two. We must recognize that sin is deceptive. We must recognize that sin is deceptive. Now, I want to take some time to sort of explain the way that, that Satan and sin and, and temptations and stuff, they control us and how it ends up hardening us and deceiving us and creating motivations. And I think it'll be helpful for us to renew our understanding in this and we can see eventually how it led to where someone like the religious leaders would, would do what they do in the face of such great truth. So the power that Satan and demons have over people is sin. Because people love to sin, the enemy uses those sinful desires and tempts us towards the direction that he wants us to go. I'll say it a different way. We are sinners, and so Satan uses our sinful desires that we already have, and he tempts us to carry out his purposes. If you want someone to be discouraged, he'll tempt and, and use you if you're prone to anger. If you want somebody hurt or even killed, 
He'll use someone's love for money or something else to carry that out. Our love for sin and giving into his temptations is how the enemy controls us. This is what Paul means when he talks about people being captured to do his will. Sin is the leash that Satan holds us captive with. If you love to sin, he can control you through temptation to sin. But if you belong to Jesus, his death forgives you of that sin. And because you've been forgiven, God breaks that leash. He sets you free from your love for sin and Satan loses his power over you. And so because you've lost, in a, in a very general sense, I understand we still have temptation and sinful desire, but it's, there is a, a, a breaking free from, from that initial, initial great power he had over us. Because you've lost uh, your desire for sin, the enemy has no power over you now. But the battle is still not over yet. Even though, so there has been a strong break from sin and Satan, Satan still does what he can to regain control back over us. And this is his schemes. And, the, and, and Paul says that we are wise to the schemes of the devil and we should be too. This is the scheme. This is how he works. He comes to you and he presents you with a lie. Now, if you're a Christian, it's, it's usually a smaller lie. You're not going to believe a bigger lie right away. And so he comes to you with a, a small lie and he tries to get you to believe it. An example, maybe you're, you're scrolling through Facebook and, or Instagram or you're on uh, TikTok. Um, he might sell you the lie that it's okay to look at some man or some woman with desire for just a few seconds. It's only a few seconds after all. There are other examples we could go to. We can't continue to talk about all the small lies he could present you. But if you believe that lie, and I want to say that the lies that we believe often come out when we justify our sin, it shows that that's the lie that we're believing. That's the lie Satan sold us. When we believe the lie he presents, Satan has begun to regain some control over you. He will take that little sin that you're playing with, that little lie, and he will train you with it over and over and over again until you're fully sold on it. And you love it. And the love for that sin creates in you a strong desire and motivation to keep doing that sin. So we believe the lie first and then we start doing the sin that comes with that lie. And when we begin to love a lie and sin so much, we will choose that sin even at great cost to us and to other people. The 
the CEOs of those tobacco companies, they were so greedy and willing to keep repeating and probably believing the lie that cigarettes are safe and not addictive, even though it meant potentially killing millions of people. Sin is so strong, so deceptive, so destructive. Do not play with it. It will destroy you. But what about you? What lies are you believing? Maybe uh, there are lies we could say for a single person, elderly persons. Um, maybe you're married and you bought into the lie that, uh, that what you would call innocent, which is really flirting, maybe you've bought into that, that that's okay. A little bit of that's okay. Satan is going to train you in that sin, which you don't, you're trying to downplay, until you're ready to believe an even greater lie. And then as time goes on, you're going to keep buying into bigger and bigger lies, and you're going to keep falling into bigger and greater sins. What started off with what you thought was flirting becomes justified pornography watching and then justified adultery. What began with justified coveting over time becomes self-deceived, justified stealing. And it gets to the point that we can believe lies so strongly that the self-deception makes perfect sense to us, but sounds absolutely absurd to anyone else listening to us. The justified reasons we have for doing our sins may sound logical to us, but whenever other people hear it, they just like, that, that doesn't make sense. That's, that's ridiculous. I know a woman once, she was having an affair. And to her, she told me she wasn't doing anything wrong. The reason she gave me for saying that she didn't do anything wrong and for justifying her affair was that her husband had treated her badly at the beginning of their marriage. Now, at the time of this affair, they had already been married for 20 years. So she's reaching back possibly 18, 19 years. What's going on here is self-deception. This is someone who loves sin so much and are believing a lie so deeply that they're going to do whatever they have to hurt whoever needs to be hurt so they can have their cherished sin. to hold on to their power, the religious leaders, they were worried about the threat from Rome and they used that threat to justify the killing and rejection of Jesus by saying in the Gospels, it is better that one man should die for the people than for the entire nation perish. 
They were so self-deceived that they believed that killing Jesus and rejecting him, which we see in our text, was doing a good thing. They probably believed that they were really keeping Israel from believing in being led astray from other gods. It's probably what they told themselves. And I say all this because I want us to understand the way that our minds, the way that we sin, the way that our minds work, and the way that Satan works, so that we can fight it even at the very beginning, at the small lies he begins to tell us. And I'm going to say that the lies of Satan can be difficult for us to discern on matters of Christian freedom. Issues like what clothes should I wear uh, or drinking alcohol. How much is actually sinful? At what point have we gone past our freedom and into abuse and sin? For those who are more hard-lined and unwilling to compromise or budge an inch on things that Scripture says clearly and that it condemns clearly, we'll find that the enemy is going to try to operate on us in these gray areas of Christian freedom. If he can't get you to budge where Scripture is clear, he can find no crack in your armor, he's going to try to operate in gray areas. If you like to enjoy your Christian freedoms, he's going to tell you to indulge. Or on the other end, those of us who have a more legalistic mindset, he wants us to believe that we have a greater piety and build, he wants to build up in us a sinful, self-righteous attitude that judges those who do partake in their Christian freedoms. So here's the solution I have so that we don't become religious hypocrites, so that we don't become Sadducees. Look at the sin. You can obviously see the sin in your life. Look at that sin. Discover the lie that you are believing that's causing you, that's justifying that sin you're doing. Renounce it as a lie and correct your mind with the truth of Scripture. What if you're at the point of giving up on your Christian faith? How'd you get here? Maybe you started off with a strong view of, of God's sovereignty and salvation, and you combine that with the fact that you know that God will sovereignly keep all who are his. And because you believe that you're a believer and God will keep you, you start to believe the lie that it's okay to slack off. John Owen, in his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he says that if Satan can't get you to sin immediately and egregiously, then what his next plan will do is that he'll spend several years slowly rocking you to sleep. And then over time, as time goes on, we start to believe that the joylessness 
the seeming distance from God, the lack of desire for the word, we start thinking that that's just normal. And, and to an extent, it's, it's probably not ever going to be again like it was when you were first saved. But there still should be joy in the Lord there. There still should be a desire for the word. And when you believe that, what's going to happen is you're going to start looking for joy in other things. Joy in pornography, or joy in maybe drugs, or something else. Maybe it's gotten to the point that you don't even want to attend church anymore. And I want to say that if you're a Christian, and if that's where you are this morning, if you've become so weighted down that you feel like you can no longer run the race, unharden your heart. If you can still hear his voice today, still speaking through his word, do not suppress it. Repent, go to him, confess your sin. And you also reach out to someone else and just say, I'm having trouble. I need, I need help. I need you to help me. Find someone. Reach out to someone. Don't do this on your own. Atheists, we saw the religious leaders protecting power. Atheists today, as one author put it, are sinfully trying to protect their modern thought, their precious modern thought. And they justify themselves saying, unless God reveals himself the way I think he needs to, he's not real. I'm, I'm sure most of you have heard of Richard Dawkins. He's, uh, he has some tours that he's gone on and, and there was an ad uh, on, there was an ad on this bus that they were driving around and um, there was a slogan that said on it, there is almost certainly no God. Live however you want. There is almost certainly no God. Live however you want. Now to be fair to God, or fair to Dawkins, he admits that he would have said it slightly differently. But can you see what's going on here? He desires to, just like in the garden, live however he wants, and he's able to do that only because God almost certainly doesn't exist. His sinful desire to live however he wants is what leads him to deny God's existence. Even though he'd probably say it's the other way around. An atheist desire for autonomy and the religious elite's desire for power is what leads both of them to reject God. We have to see how our sin creates these motivations. They deceive us, they blind us, and then we go, our motivations drive us and reject all truth. All truth that doesn't, that goes against our precious sin and our precious motivations anyway. Unbeliever, what lies are you believing in this morning? 
Maybe the lie that you're believing in right now is that your sins are ultimately okay. Your sinful lifestyle is ultimately okay. The lie that you're believing is that the God that you imagine in your head will ultimately overlook your sins on judgment day even if you don't repent. And I'm here to tell you that that is a lie. God is a God of justice. And if you're living in unrepentant sin, he will punish you for what you've done. Our cherished, your cherished sins, your cherry, and these create these motivations for you to keep doing these sins, they will take you to hell. But let me tell you something that's true. On the cross, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was paying for the sins of humanity. This is a, a legal transaction that was happening between us and God. And God, he will make you one with Jesus, his son. You will become one. And he will forgive you in him, in your union with him. And also, he can still be a God of justice because Jesus was punished in your place. If you repent and believe the gospel. So that's my plea to you this morning is to repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone listening in. I pray, Father, that you keep us, show us the sins in our life so that we don't go down that trail of doing things that would lead to apostasy, a rejection of Jesus, or being so self-deceived that we deny great truth because of our sin. Please open our eyes, awaken us, show us where we're sinning, show us the truth to correct that, help us to believe it through the Holy Spirit. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.